Good morning. How's everyone doing? All right. Praise God. Uh, welcome to the Springs. My name is Pastor Alberto, and I get to serve and lead this church alongside our awesome team of elders. And I'm so excited uh, to be in church this morning. Uh, I just love you guys so much. Everyone looks so good. The weather is awesome, so I'm super pumped, and uh, this is the most overwhelming I'm going to be, so I'm bringing it in. I'm bringing it in. Uh, listen, I, wanna, I have this thought that I want to share before we get started. Uh, one of the things that I enjoy that, that captivates me about God is that he exists uh, as this uh, triune God, uh, this Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what's so incredible about the Trinity is that we see that, that each person, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are, are each individually God, uh, and yet they're distinct in the role. And from the very beginning, we see uh, the Trinity existing um, equally, uh, yet distinctly from one another in this diverse relationship. And from the very beginning, God's heart was diversity. God's heart was community. And we see that on display in the Trinity, uh, so much so that when God creates, he creates from this place that is intrinsic to himself, and he creates a diverse humanity. Uh, God doesn't just create this homogenous group of people that uh, is just a white group of people or a black group of people or a Hispanic group of people, but he creates this diverse community. And in doing so, when this community comes together, it images God. It shows us God's um, attributes and characteristics. Uh, and all that to say is, uh, I don't know about you, but on my calendar, uh, I, I got to May and it said that we are in AAPI month, which means uh, Asian American Pacific Islander month. It's a, it's a month on the national calendar that commemorates and celebrates the contributions that the Asian American culture has had. And, and, and as I'm thinking about the Trinity, as I'm thinking about how diverse God is, it really moves my heart to worship. It moves my heart because when I think about my Asian American friends that have come through this church or that are currently in this church, I've seen and I've learned so much about the Lord. And I've seen God's heart on display in different cultures and different communities. And it's a beautiful thing that should be celebrated. And that's what I want to do in this moment is acknowledge the Asian American Pacific Islander culture uh, in our country. Now, one of the most tragic things that can happen is when image bearers are undignified. Uh, when the people of God are victims of abuse and destruction and chaos. In fact, it's this sin that plagues the Old Testament where, where groups of people begin to oppress other groups of people and it grieves the heart of God. It breaks the heart of God. And sin, uh, James chapter 2, he calls this the sin of partiality. Uh, where you begin to preference other people based off your own uh, status or preferences or ideas that leads to all sorts of racism and prejudice and injustices. And as a church, as a community, we want to express the heart of God and be in step with the Spirit and, and, and strive to be a diverse community because we believe that's kingdom community. And as long as we exist as a community, we want to uh, be in step with Jesus and speak against uh, the injustices that would plague uh, God's creation, abortion, refugee crises, injustices against specific ethnic cultures. And so what I want to do in this moment, especially since it's AAPI month, I want to take a moment to pray and to celebrate uh, and worship how diverse our God is, and really just thank him uh, for his uh, creation, especially as we see in the Asian American culture. And then I want to take a moment to really pray that those who have been victims of Asian hate, or those who are perpetuating it, would submit their lives to the Lordship of Christ and repent of their sin, and that they would move away from hate and move into love. So will you pray with me? Lord, Thank you. Thank you for being such a wonderful God who from the very beginning has shown us a, a glimpse of your diversity and your heart for family. And Lord, we celebrate that. We lift that up. We, we, we thank you, Father, uh, for the Asian American Pacific Islander a family that, that you've brought into our community in years past and that, and that we have now. Thank you, Lord, for, for showing us a glimpse of, of your heart and your nature through your people. Thank you, Lord, that, that your word says that you are a God of the nations, uh, that every tribe and tongue you're coming to reclaim. And, um, and Lord, we are excited for that day when we're worshiping you together as one family. 
Lord, I pray for those who have been, especially now, it seems like uh, we, we go through Instagram, we go through Twitter, and we see these viral videos of, of Asian Americans being victims of hate crimes. Lord, we, we pray that they would find hope and joy and healing. I pray that you would strengthen them. And Lord, I thank you that you are God that draws near to the oppressed and the afflicted. And Lord, those who, who um, spread hate and give themselves to violence, I pray that they would submit themselves to your lordship and repent of their sin. That they would love you and, and be a people that pushes love and drives away darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So I'm, I, I'm excited about that. And I, and I start with that because the passage that we're about to look at uh, has this really cool Trinitarian uh, framework going on. Uh, as we look at Jude chapter 1, 17 through 25, we're going to look at a, a few verses uh, as, as we continue our series through the book of Jude. So I want to invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. Jude chapter 1, verse 17 through 25. This is what it says. But you must remember, beloved, uh, the predictions of of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, You may be seated. Uh, With the remaining time that that we have together, uh, I want to walk us through three specific points that will sort of help frame this text. Uh, Number one, building. Number two, praying. And number three, waiting. Building, praying, and waiting. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, I pray that as we look into the word, uh, that you would uh, meet us here. I pray that you would open up our heart, our eyes, our mind to see you in this text. Would you make our heart good soil, Lord? And would you remove any distractions or fears that we may have come into this room with? And I pray that you would give us this 2020 vision to look into your word and receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. favorite books and um, we're coming to an end through this this three-part series and so this one short chapter carries so much weight and 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 mentions so much rich details and and we're coming to the end and and as you can see uh, Jude we're revisiting this idea this text that we covered a few weeks ago keeping yourself in the love of God that's an important detail, and as Jude is, is encouraging the people that he's writing to that are experiencing so much division and chaos and turmoil in their local church, two things he's encouraging them to do. Contend for the faith and keep yourself in the love of God. Let's look at verse uh, twenty, as we, verse 17 as we discuss this idea of building. It says, but you must remember, beloved... The predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now, I want to look at this verse, verse, these set of words, last time, because it's going to help sort of set the scene. Uh, In Luke chapter 4, Jesus kicks off his earthly ministry. And it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, Jesus arrives into the temple, the place of Hebrew worship, and he walks to the very front and he takes the scroll that housed the the Torah and he opens up to Isaiah chapter 61. 
Now, if you were a well-trained Jewish boy or Jewish girl, you would have known what's about to happen. You would have had these texts, these verses memorized. And Jesus begins to read uh, 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 two verses from the book of Isaiah. He says that the spirit of the Lord is on me. This is Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 2. He says, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now this was a jaw-dropping moment in the synagogue because Jesus is reading this Old Testament prophecy. And like the boss that he is says, today the scripture has been fulfilled. It's an incredible moment. And everyone's looking around thinking, wait, what? Jesus, the carpenter, we know your dad. And we know your mom. You ain't special. And Jesus closes the scroll and walks off. Now, what's also perplexing about this moment is, is that there's more to the verse. And Jesus deliberately does not include the end of verse 2. You see, it goes on to say that the day of vengeance of our God is coming to comfort all who mourn. And what Jesus does in this moment as he announces his ministry is that he deliberately does not include these last few words of Isaiah. And this is incredible because in this simple omission, Jesus has divided this Old Testament prophetic hope into two separate events. In this moment, Jesus is saying, I've come to arrive. I've arrived as your savior to deliver you from your sin to take upon the wrath of God that you deserve, to take upon the wages of sin that you deserve and deliver you from that and grant you eternal life. And this is incredible because the Old Testament always looked forward to this prophetic hope as one distinct event as that, that happened altogether, the day of salvation and the day of judgment. In the Old Testament, they thought that the day of salvation and the day of judgment would all come at once. That, that the Messiah would come and deliver the people of God from, from the enemies around them, judge the nations that uh, stood in opposition to God, and that God would establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven forever. And what Jesus is doing, and what's so incredible, is that he shows up and inaugurates one event that he has come as Savior, and now there's a future event that's coming. That Jesus is going to come back and judge the living and the dead. And establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven for eternity. You see, this period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is what the apostles called the last times. It was this period of waiting for Jesus to return. And when we think of last times, we kind of think of it as, as, as events. The events that will take place before the world ends. The, the years or the months of turmoil before Jesus returns. But the last times, according to the apostles, is that period when Jesus ascended into heaven. And now we're waiting eagerly for his return. We've been in the last times since Jesus ascended into heaven. And so this period is called the last times. And, and, and what Jude is saying and what the scripture teaches us is that this period of waiting for the return of Jesus will be marked by scoffers. People following their own ungodly passions. Uh, they, are, they have ungodly desires and, and they're pursuing their own way of life. And what Jude is trying to show us is that this specific group of people aren't scoffing people, aren't making fun of people who don't believe in God. Rather, they're scoffing people who don't believe like them. Oh, you don't believe that you can sin all that you want and do whatever you want and that grace will abound? Paul teaches it. It's in the Bible. And Judah is saying that, the, that there's going to be a group of people that arise that will try to justify their lifestyle using specific verses of the Bible. And it's ultimately rooted in ungodly desires. And we see this played out today. Oh, man, uh, extreme nationalism. God loves America and there's nothing else like it. And this is his chosen nation. And here's the scriptures to support this view. And that's why we live the way that we live. 
And instead of submitting your life to the authority of Scripture, you begin to justify your lifestyle using Scripture. All the way to the other spectrum. Violent pursuits of justice. We'll do whatever it takes to get what is ours. And here's these scriptures, Jesus flipping tables, and here's this idea in the New Testament. And instead of pursuing the gospel's vision for justice, one that drives out darkness through love, and being in step with the Spirit of God as we care for the afflicted and the oppressed, different scriptures and different stories are used to justify lifestyle. And this is the temptation that Jude is warning us against. Maybe you don't find yourself in this extreme camp, one side or another, but we all do this with our own lives. We all live lives in such a way where we try to justify everything that we do. Uh, we, we, we say things like, uh, you know, uh, what's a little, what, what's one more alcoholic substance? It's okay, grace will abound. I'm, I'm not really there yet, but you're not really sober-minded either. We say things like, what's one more episode of uh, Netflix? Uh, gluttony only applies to food. We say things like, I will begin to pursue God and live for Jesus once I get this out of my system. After all, he's, he's, he's my safety net. He's always there. He's Father. He loves me. And what Jude is saying is that this, this false teacher, this idea of false teacher, extends beyond people standing on a pulpit proclaiming a way of living. It's inside of all of us where we want to justify ourselves and justify our sin because there's these ungodly desires, these roots of sin that we want to give ourselves over to instead of putting them to death and submitting it to the Lordship of Christ. And Judah's saying that in this last times, this will be, uh, re- this, this will be all over the place. And, and we see this now within ourselves and, 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 and scrolling through the news and the media. Uh, people following their own ungodly passions, myself included. And what always happens when, when, when you pursue your own passions and your own desires is that people will always get hurt. The world does not become a better place when you pursue and make much of your own sinful passions and sinful desires. You might experience temporary joy and temporary satisfaction, but it always comes at the expense of something or someone else. And instead of being in harmony with love and pushing back the forces of darkness, you begin to swim in it and and tear deeper fabrics, deeper tears into your family, society, into the world. And it's God's kindness that he orders for us a way to live, that, that, that he gives us the law, that he gives us the scripture so that we can submit our lives to it and actually live life to the fullest. Actually live life in such a way that it is life-giving, that it is satisfying and fulfilling as we live as we were designed to in union and relationship with God. He goes on to say in verse 19 that it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. And when we live lives that aren't submitted to the authority of Jesus, we all do this. We cause all sorts of division, all sorts of chaos. But he, but he says in verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Jude begins to outline what it looks like to keep yourself in the love of God. You see, God's love is always flowing and positioned towards us, but as humans, we have the tendency to remove ourselves from God's love. That's why the language of of, of God being the good shepherd and us being sheep, it, it resonates and is so accurate because sheep wander. They stray away from the shepherd. Uh, and it's not that the shepherd isn't uh, uh, removing himself from caring for his sheep or his flock. It's that we removed ourselves from experiencing God's love from being positioned in a place where we experience his endless grace, mercy, and love. And Jude says that there's three things that you can do that will help you keep yourself in the love of God. And the first thing that he says is building yourselves up in your most holy faith. So so how do you build up your faith? What does this mean? When the scripture talks about building up your faith, it's always compared to the constant productive activity of a building site. 
Uh, we always see this terminology, building, used in association with the building site. Uh, you lay stones and you, and you create a holy temple. You're, you're building something. You're laying a foundation and, and building a house or a place of worship for the Lord. And I love this idea because um, it emphasizes this idea that, that it's a lifelong activity. That, that building something, that, that building your life around Jesus isn't just saying yes to Jesus and then moving on with your life. It's this constant activity of orienting your life around the person of Christ. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God that when we experience this reconciliation. Jesus brings us into the household of God, and we move away from being children of the devil that John says to being children of our Father. We're adopted when we say yes to Jesus, and we're moved into his family. And he says that this house is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the apostles that brought forth the faith and, and started the early church and the prophets who spoke of it in Old Testament with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the foundation on which this is all built, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what's so amazing about this is that when Jude is asking us and encouraging us to build yourself up in your faith, that Greek word is this lifelong activity. You never stop doing this. You never outgrow it. You keep growing in your faith till the day you die. But what Jude is trying to show us and what the scriptures often reveal is that growing in your faith is not just learning a few doctrinal statements. Growing in your faith is not just learning that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of your life and then moving on. Growing in your faith is not just being able to articulate how Jesus saved you and what the gospel means. Growing in your faith doesn't mean being able to recite John 3.16 and then claim that you know Jesus and that you're in a relationship with him off that alone. You see, growing in your faith is much more than that. Jude didn't give us like this doctrinal statement. He didn't say this is what the faith is and, and you're good to go. He actually stays away from that because what he's trying to show us is that growing in your faith is this lifelong activity of building your whole life on the person of Christ. This means bringing the whole of your life, your intellect, your actions, your emotions, and your lifestyle, bringing your life increasingly into conformity to God's word. It's not just saying that you're a Christian. It's not just showing up to a few things. It's not just behaving correctly. It's much more than that. It's going through life and bringing every single area of your life increasingly into conformity to God's word. And the reason why this is a lifelong activity is because the things that you're going to struggle with today aren't going to be the things that you struggle with next year. And the, and the insecurities and the doubts that plague you this moment, the Lord will bring you through that and then you'll work through something else six months from now. And it's this lifelong activity of surrendering your entire life to the Lordship of Christ. One season of marriage will not look like the next season of marriage. And in that season of marriage, the Lord will expose an entirely different set of sins. That in his kindness, he wants to bring you healing by submitting to his Lordship. One career might be really good. And then the next career will expose an entirely different set of problems that need to be sanctified and submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And that's what's so incredible and so kind about uh, our amazing Father is that in this progression of becoming more and more like him, he is involved in every single moment, in every single second, revealing to us where we are and carrying us forward to where we should be. And as we keep ourselves in the love of God, Paul says that, that we experience this incredible transformation, one degree of glory to another. 
I was at this pastor's uh, conference uh, cluster meeting this last week, and I was talking to this old head, older than Scott, believe it or not. Uh, love you, Scott. Uh, and he was, uh, well, actually, yeah, yeah, much older. Uh, uh, and uh, he'd been in ministry for like 60 years, and I'm like, wow, when did you start? Uh, and uh, I was asking him, hey, like, like, can you share with me some, like, practical wisdom, like, about uh, marriage and, and fathering? I just got an eight-month-old, and I don't know what to do. And, and what he told me was so humbling. He said, just, just eliminate all expectations. You'll never figure it out. And the reason why is because your son is going to change so much. So once you figure it out in one season of life, it's, gonna, it's not going to work for the next season. Your relationship is going to change. Your life is going to change. And so just being able to release those expectations, release that sense of control to the Lord, and trust that he's good, and that he desires good for your life, and that God knows what he's doing, and that submitting to his lordship, submitting to his rule and reign is the best, safest place we can be. And oftentimes, growing in our faith looks just like that. It's moving away from this control and this allegiance to self to this um, trust and allegiance in Jesus, and being able to say, Lord, I don't know where you want me to be. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what this is going to look like, but I'm going to submit my life to you and trust that you will make all things work out for my good building ourselves up in the faith, this lifelong activity of, of bringing every area of our life into increasing, increasing conformity to God's word. It means growing as a student of the word, sitting in the word of God, listening to the word of God, reading the word of God. It means daily prioritizing the practice of spending time alone with the Lord, practicing solitude, carving out five, ten minutes, to look at the word and let the Holy Spirit minister to you and do something life-changing. What's so incredible about the word of God is, is I, I believe this now more than ever, is that you can stare into the word of God and have no idea what's happening. And yet the spirit is doing something. The spirit of God is ministering. The spirit of God is rearranging. The spirit of God is uh, awakening and opening up our eyes to the heart of God. Because God's word is alive and active. Living out the word. So not just reading the word, not just hearing the word, but actually putting it into practice. Doing the work of the word. So asking the Holy Spirit to help us. Lord, you you say give generously. Help me do that. Lord, you, you, you say care for the least of these. Give me a heart to do that. Lord, you say be slow to anger. Help me put this into practice. And as you put this into practice and experience the the fruit of obedience, it creates deeper connection with the Lord. The second way that that Jude says that, that we keep ourselves in the love of God is by praying. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting waiting for the mercy of our Lord that leads to eternal life, praying in the Holy Spirit. So, so what does this mean? What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? I love this quote by Christopher Green, a commentator on Jude. He says, part of the Holy Spirit's promised work is to make us aware of the gap between the way things should be and the way things are, as understood from the Bible. When we are aware of it on a personal level, we call that experience conviction of sin. When we are aware of it in another person, we may realize that he or she needs to understand a, part, a particular Christian truth in order to become a Christian or a better Christian. And we call that experience love. It's incredible that the Holy Spirit's role in our life is to make us aware of where we are and what God has for us. And he bridges that gap as he draws us closer to God and we repent and turn from sin. Part of the Holy Spirit's work is, is as we're drawn together and we come into the family of God is to have this rugged commitment to one another where we see maybe parts of our lives that aren't experiencing God's love and grace and we bring that truth to that person and say, hey, have you considered this? Hey, let, let's pray about this. Let's struggle with this together. You see, when we pray in the Spirit, What's happening here is that when we pray, we're empowered by the Spirit with the Spirit of God. So what this means is that we never pray alone. That when we are praying in the Holy Spirit, we have an advocate, a person that is going before us, helping us us intercede with God, and, and we experience His power and His presence. So when we pray, we're not alone. 
we're with God's presence communing with us. When we pray in the Holy Spirit, it means that we're guided by the Spirit. Uh, Romans 8, 26-27 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I just sit on my chair and I groan. Oh, I'm just kidding, I don't do that. <laughs> uh, but there's this turmoil, there's this conflict, there's this weight, this burden on our hearts that we don't know how to express and, and put into words. And what this scripture says is that the Lord is aware of that. And, and that in relationship with God, that, that the Holy Spirit within us is, is helping us commune and intercede with God and, and helping us connect to the Lord, even when we don't have the words to pray, but we're experiencing the emotions and the feelings from the heart of God. And he who searches the heart knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Uh, Praying in the Holy Spirit means praying in tongues. Uh, This is an experience that the Scripture says, talks about in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, Verse 4 says, The one who speaks in tongues builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues. This is Paul speaking. But even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. He goes on to say in verse 12, So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 13, Therefore one who speaks in tongues should pray that he may interpret. For I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I, I will pray with my spirit. I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praises with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. And now this, this, this gift of tongues is one that um, the scripture talks about as, as one of the gifts given by the spirit that is used to help edify and empower the believer. And it seems like in our day and age, there's just been so much chaos and controversy around these spiritual gifts. Uh, mostly because of their abuse and their misuse. And we believe that, 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 that this gift, that, that, that uh, speaking in tongues and prophesying and hospitality and mercy, all these are on the same level playing field, and they're gifts that God gives to the church for the building up of the church, not to be used for selfish gain. And so Paul says that there's restrictions for praying in tongues in, in public use. If you're going to pray in tongues in a group with unlearned people, don't do it, he says unless there's an interpreter. But he says in private use, if the, if the Lord has blessed you with this prayer language, pray in tongues, pray in the Holy Spirit. He says, my mind, uh, I, I pray with my mind, but I also pray with my spirit and the spirit of God is interceding on my behalf. And so praying to God looks like knowing that you're never alone. Knowing that when you don't have the right words to say that the heart of God is connecting to your will and to your emotions, that the groanings and the pains we're experiencing the Lord hears those. It also means that God has blessed uh, the church with, with the gift of praying in tongues for personal edification, for the advancement of his church, for the building up of his kingdom. And, and, and really, I, I love what one commentator says, because there's been this back and forth. What does praying in the Holy Spirit mean? Does it mean this? Does it mean that? And one commentator says this, Jude just wants us to pray. <laughs> just Pray. Uh, if you pray in tongues in, in private, pray. If, if there's this groaning inside of you and you don't know how to express the, the articulate the pain and the experience that you're having internally, present yourself to the Lord. If you have words, pray. If there's this burden on your heart for the nations, pray for the nations. Ask God uh, to help use you to be an ambassador of Christ and to see the nations one. If there's this burden on your heart to step into the injustices that this world experienced, ask God to give you uh, his heart of compassion and love so you can step into the darkness and bring light into those places. If there is this calling on your life, and and you feel this burden uh, uh, to pray for your family, pray for your family. If you see someone who is sick, and and faith comes over you, and he says, I read stories about Jesus healing the sick. Can I pray for you? Pray. Jude just wants us to pray. And however we pray, or whenever we pray, here's the incredible thing, is that we get God. 
We receive God. We commune with the God who is there to receive us. And, and I love how, how Jesus simplifies prayer, that, that, that prayer is more about the person that we're communing with and not so much our words. It's this idea of, of God being such an incredible, loving, present Father that if you're groaning and crying, he hears you. The way that, that the groaning and sufferings of, of, of the enslaved um, Israelites in Egypt, the Lord heard as their cries went up. The Lord hears us. When we use words, the Lord hears us. When we lack words, the Lord hears us because it's more about the person that we're communicating with and not so much our words or how we're saying it or when we're doing it. And what the enemy wants to do sometimes is to convince us that that our prayers are ineffective because we're not saying the right things or we don't know enough scripture or that the quality of our prayers is, is less than because uh, I haven't been a Christian that, as long as this person, so maybe that's why God's not moving in my life. And yet the enemy can speak like that because the enemy doesn't have a father. You have a father. You are in Christ and God is your father. And when you speak to him, he hears you. When you cry, he responds. When you're in pain, he draws near. When you speak in tongues, he edifies you so that you can go and uh, be a witness for his kingdom. He's doing all things in in such a way that, that is for our good but his glory. And so if all you say is, Jesus, help, that's the prayer Peter prayed when he was drowning. And God was present to rescue him. If you don't have words to say, you're in good company. Because God isn't drawing near to us based on the quality of our words, but based off who he is for us, and that's a loving father. The last thing that Jude says is is waiting. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. To keep ourselves in the love of God, to position ourselves in this place where we're constantly experiencing the overflow of God's love and grace and delight over our lives, Jude says to build yourself up in the faith. He says to pray in the Holy Spirit. And he says to wait. I love this idea of waiting. It's the idea of watching. Uh, looking expectantly and with certainty. Micah 7, 7 says, But as for me, I will look for the Lord. I, I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we waste no time wondering if he is coming back. We know he is coming again. So we live our lives in, in light of that. We live our lives with this constant expectation that Jesus is returning. And how do I want to be living when I receive my king? Where do I want to find myself when Jesus comes back? It's this idea of waiting with certainty that at any moment, this moment, which would be awesome, uh, Jesus would come back. And in this glorious moment, Judge the living and dead and once and for all conquer sin, conquer pain, conquer hurt. Wipe away every single tear and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven for eternity in perfect harmony as we live with union and joy in him. Um, I'm so excited and, and it kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll try this one time. Uh, the Avengers. Let's, let's try a Marvel illustration. Uh, let's try this. Some people in the back are, are listening. I was, I was scrolling through Instagram, and I, and I saw this clip of that epic scene in uh, Endgame where Captain America looks defeated. Thanos thinks he's won. The kingdom of darkness thinks it's about to you know, rule and reign forever. And he's distressed. He's afflicted. He's oppressed. He's, he's beaten, and he's bruised, and there's no fight left in him. And then all of a sudden, these weird, magical, I don't even know what you call them, holes begin to open, and, and all of these awesome saints of the Lord return. <laughs> and the heavens part, and all these angels and prophets are coming in, ushering in the kingdom of God, and in perfect union and harmony, they come alongside um, lesser Jesus, Captain America, uh, and defeat the kingdom of darkness. 
And uh, I, I kid you not, my wife thinks I'm so weird. I, I teared up every time I, I watched that scene. I just love it so much. It's so good because it reminds me of this, this epic hope that you and I get to await and experience. It's not this like absent hope. It's this idea that in one moment, Jesus is going to come back once and for all. And when he snaps his finger, everything will be restored as it was in the beginning with perfect unity and harmony as we enjoy God in the garden. And once and for all, all of the pain, all of the afflictions, all of the, 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 the momentary stressors and, and problems and pains and death that we experience, God will make sense of. And we'll experience the full manifestation of hope and joy as we're with our risen Jesus. And he restores everything back into order as he defeats the kingdom of darkness once and for all. We're waiting for that. We're eager for that. We live in light of that, that this is like an actual reality. And so what this means for you and I is that our hope isn't dictated on our current circumstances, but on a past event, the cross, that gives way to this future glory that you and I will experience. And so we live in light of that. We live in life that, that though uh, life and death may come, Lord, though the Lord gives and takes away, though I'm afflicted, bruised, and battered, though I'm hard-pressed and perplexed on every side, this current circumstance, this situation does not dictate my future hope and that there's a greater hope, a better world, a better life that I'm going to inherit that's coming. And yet what's so great about this is that this isn't, Uh, this unrealistic optimism or escapism. Rather, this future glory, this future reality is what empowers us to live right now on earth as it is in heaven, to make much of Jesus, to build our lives around him, to worship him. And when we experience disappointment, we keep worshiping him, knowing that God will wipe away every tear and make all things right. That when we are uh, uh, afflicted and oppressed, we continue to move forward And be ambassadors of hope and mercy, knowing that hope and mercy is awaiting. And that what I'm experiencing right now isn't what I'm going to experience in the future. Living in light of this helps us keep ourselves in the love of God. Building, praying, and waiting. As uh, John 15, uh, 9 through 11, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that your joy may, that, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So when your world is falling apart, and when nothing makes sense, And it seems like it's really difficult and hard to follow Jesus. Jesus gives us this incredible promise that as we continue to follow him and live in obedience to him, he will deposit his joy inside of us. His joy that will carry us and sustain us. And as we move towards this obedience and following him, his joy will fill our hearts. Now let's be honest for a moment. Building our lives around the person of Christ is a really difficult thing to do. It's really easy to say, ah, yes, read the word and live in the word and steep in the word and let the word transform. It's another thing to do. Because everyone has different life experiences. Some people wake up uh, early, go to bed later, some, you know, work and stress. And it seems like before you know it, the day's over and there's not time left. Or just for whatever reason, you know, life may be in a difficult season and just drawing near to the word of God, opening up the pages seems impossible. If we're honest with ourselves, praying as simple as it is, communing with God is an incredibly difficult thing to do sometimes. It seems so much easier to just sit in silence and let the feelings of anger and bitterness and rage just consume us. It's an incredibly difficult thing sometimes just to be able to say, Jesus, I love you and call out for help. Sometimes self-sufficiency just kicks in to overdrive. And if we're honest, waiting is an incredible difficult thing to do. Many people in this room are waiting. Maybe uh, you're waiting for uh, the right career. Maybe you're waiting to graduate. Maybe you're, you're waiting for a child. Maybe you're waiting for a spouse. Maybe you're waiting for just God to bring a sense of breakthrough in your own personal life. And it seems like waiting is an impossible thing to do. And yet what's so amazing about the gospel, what's so amazing about the good news of the kingdom of God 
is that when we were falling apart and unable to build ourselves up, Jesus comes and steps into our humanity and empowers us to follow him. When we lacked words to pray and we were afflicted and in chaos and depressed and sad and unable to see the light, Jesus walks in and says something like, Lazarus, come out where it seems like there's death and it seems like there's impossibility and it seems like there's just this inability to access God and commune with God, he comes and meets us where we are. And he doesn't leave us or forsake us. And when it seems like waiting will never end and we won't experience the promise or the desires of our heart on this side of eternity, we see Jesus wait. We see him live a very ordinary life. We see him swing a hammer. We see him start his earthly ministry at a a later age. And we see him die. And as he's waiting for the father to intervene on his behalf, the father turns away so that you and I could always experience God's presence. That even when we're waiting for that career move, waiting for that next life stage, waiting for God to do something in our lives, we're not waiting alone. And we have this gift of God's presence with us forever. Because as Jesus was waiting in that empty tomb, we see the promise of resurrection as he rises from the dead. And so in our waiting the Lord will always be with us and the Lord will resurrect the desires of our hearts and the promise that he's spoken to us, whether it's here or on the other side of eternity, but we get the Lord and we're with him. And we begin, he begins to teach us that, that he is truly satisfying and truly fulfilling. And we can believe this. We can walk in this truth because I love how this uh, um, chapter ends, this whole book ends, this incredible, uh, Uh, set of verses of worship unto God, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. There will be moments where you will not read your scriptures and be alone with God, and you will uh, want to abandon him and run away. There will be moments where you don't want to give yourself into prayer and when you're tired of waiting, but now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now unto him who is able to meet you in those moments of weakness and suffering and keep you preserve you, carry you forward. You don't cross this finish line. Jesus carries you. Jesus helps you complete this marathon of life. And to present you, he he carries us, he presents us before the presence of his glory with great joy. Listen, church, the Lord delights in you so much so that even when you are stumbling and you are uh, running away from the Lord or you find yourself afflicted and distant, he delights in chasing you down and carrying you into the kingdom of God and presenting you with joy. That's an incredible thing. That, that the Lord delights in you and loves you so much so that your worst parts about you don't move his heart away from love or joy. And he takes every single part of your life into consideration and he carries you forward and presents you with joy to God the Father. This is my treasured possession. Welcome home. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, present you blameless. And you're not blameless. You're not without sin. We are guilty. We, we, we deserve uh, the wage of our sin, which is death and eternal separation, but not to him who is able to carry us and present us as though as sinners who are without sin because his blood cleanses us, washes us white as snow, delivers us from the wrath of God, delivers us from eternal separation and presents us as though we had never sinned. Now to him, now to this God who is able, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Praise God. God is able. If you find yourself in a season where you're not able to pursue the Lord, where you're not able to open the word, to commune with him, to wait for him, he is able. And he is able through you to keep you from stumbling, to preserve you, to draw you near, to get you through this valley and present you as holy and blameless before the Father.
And if you do find yourself in this place where you're overflowing with God's love and, and you're experiencing great power and great mercy and great grace and you're just like 100%, here's what Jude says to you. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. I, I just love Jesus so much because Jess and I don't plan this. So he gets up here and he's led by the Spirit and he has this awesome story about snatching people. And I'm like, wish I had that story. Same thing. Man, if, if you're at 100% capacity and the Lord has empowered you and emboldened you and you're just walking in great joy and strength, come alongside a brother or sister who's not. Snatch them. Grab them. Bring them into your life. Set an extra plate at the dinner table. Check in on them. Love them. This rugged commitment of loving them into all that God's called them to be. As God is loving you and purposefully loving you into all that he's called you to be. Be patient. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. This idea that, 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 that showing mercy to others means sometimes being aggressive as the Lord leads you. When you see a brother or sister giving themselves over to a sin that is destroying them. And being so aggressive about it that you choose, uh, a, 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 as he says, uh, burning, uh, or some translators say, burning the garment or hating the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep us and preserve us and work through us a life of building our lives on Jesus, praying and communing with him and waiting. Let's pray before we worship in communion. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your great grace, your great mercy. Lord, thank you for your incredible heart. Lord, thank you for uh, not leaving us to ourselves, but meeting us where we are and giving us new life in Christ. And Lord, just being so gracious enough to give us wisdom for today as we wait for your return. I pray that you would help us build our lives around you. I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would help us commune with you. And I pray that you would give us the patience and the joy to actively wait for you. I want to take a moment before we come to the table. Maybe you're in this room and as we continue praying with our eyes closed or head bowed, or maybe you're on live stream. And, and, and you know that you're not in this relationship with Jesus and, and you're experiencing the turmoil of self-sufficiency and trying to build your life around yourself and you being the authority over your life and you're seeing things fall apart or not go according to plan. That's God's grace and kindness towards you, showing you that you're not a good Lord, but he is. And that he's not going to reject you or abandon you, but if you come to him, he will receive you. So I want to take a moment, if you're not in a relationship with Jesus and you want to say yes to Jesus and cross over into a life of faith in him, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Praise God. Praise God. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Uh, thank you for your sons and daughters in this room. Uh, thank you, Lord, that, that you love them and that you had a vision of them, a foreknowledge of them as you were dying on the cross that uh, while we were still sinning, you died for us and you bridged this gap that we couldn't bridge on our own. And you came and you offered life as we repent and turn of our sin and place our faith in you. So, Lord, help us be a people that practice practices this rhythm of repentance and faith.